the Bible makes what is an utterly shocking statement about marriage. I remember the first time that I really realized it or noticed this particular statement in the Bible. It, it caught me off guard. It, it stunned me a little bit. I had to just kind of linger in it for a second. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, Paul says that if you are married, you will experience worldly troubles. Not maybe. Not if, not, not, there's not exceptions to the rule. That if you are married, if you enter into covenant with another person and endeavor to live your whole life with that person, that as you live your life, you will know worldly troubles. Now, some of you know that from experience. Any of you that have lived any period of time with a husband or a wife know the truth of what Paul is saying. As Paul is not lowering the dignity of marriage. The scriptures are clear that marriage is according to God's design and is a blessing from the Lord and is intended to bring two people together so that image bearers can be made in his image. But because of brokenness and sin, troubles come, don't they? Troubles come, fights come. Money conversations come. Parenting issues arise. Work issues come. Pressure comes. You got two sinners under one roof saying, we're going to live all of our time together. It's a recipe for conflict. A recipe for trouble. A recipe for struggle. And so Paul is just... Telling us the truth. The Bible is just doing what the Bible always does. Being upfront and honest with us. This morning as we open up Proverbs. We see a father, Solomon, giving counsel to his son. Trying to grow his son in the ways of wisdom. And he's going to focus on marriage for a little bit. And so we're just going to see a bit of a, a snapshot into this conversation that Solomon is having with his son about marriage. But Solomon's goal is that his son would maximize the joy of his marriage and minimize the worldly troubles of his marriage. And so he's doing what every good father would do. He's doing what every wise man would do. He is trying to preempt some struggles. He's trying to be proactive rather than reactive that his son might avoid some of these worldly troubles and instead know what it is like to truly rejoice day in and day out in his marriage. And so we're going to be in the second week of our eight-week series on the family. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. And as you turn to Proverbs chapter 5, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Proverbs chapter 5. In your bulletin, I put it that we were starting in verse 18, but I actually want to go back that up and start at verse 15. Proverbs 5, verse 15 reads, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. May God bless the reading and preaching of his inerrant word. You may be seated. This morning, I realized that the text that we're studying is a provocative text. And I realize that the subject that we're addressing is a sensitive subject. And so as your pastor, I just want to make two promises to you on the front end. The first promise is that we will be tasteful. This is not a time for crude jokes. This is not a time for, for jesting and laughing and, and goofiness. We're talking about God's design for your marriage here. The second promise that I, I want to make to you is that I will neither sensationalize the text, because it does not need to be sensationalized, and I will not mute the text. I will say what it says as it says it. Our goal every week is to open God's word, and according to the tone of the text, according to the structure of the text, to affect the tone and the structure of the sermon. So that is my promise to you. Pastor Ray Ortland says that all of Proverbs 5 can be really summed up into two simple sentences. Keep your hands off of every other woman and keep your hands on your wife. Keep your hands off of every other woman and keep your hands on your wife. And though we're only seeing a snapshot here of chapter 5, you're going to be able to see those, those exact two senses coming to bear yet again. That at the front of the mind of this father, as he is advising his son, is what he needs for his marriage to be a place of delight. What he needs for his marriage to be a place in which he and his wife are able to thrive together and enjoy one another and come over and over for the purpose of rejoicing. And so... You'll notice the language in verse 15. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. The language there is so intimate that if I were to explain the imagery of what's being said, every person in here would blush. But the, the important that thing that you're intended to see is to notice the ownership here. Notice what he says, your own cistern, Right? He says that in verse 15 in the first line. And then again in the second line he says, from your own well. That there's an ownership here. In other words, he is speaking to God's design of monogamy. That this is one man and one woman for life. That the picture here is that you have your own well. That God has built you with a thirst. That you have a God-given thirst. And that you have a God-given well from which you are to quench that thirst. That God built you both, and there are right desires and right thirsts and right appetites. And to quench them is to go to a right well, a right cistern that is your very own. For you to treasure and know and love and to grow in understanding and grow in knowledge and grow in joy and grow in grace together. That you don't have to look out there somewhere. God has given you a well. God has given you a well, and this is his design. Well, if in verse 15 we see God's design, in verse 16 and 17 we see sin's effect. We see sin's effect. 
He says, this is, the, the father is saying, this is the flip side. This is the other side of what, what it would be. That if you don't have your own sister, and if you look beyond your own well, should your, your, uh, should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the success? Uh, what is he saying? He's saying, with this thirst, the alternative is to wander aimlessly looking for a spring. Hoping that you happen upon one. And when you find this spring, you don't know how long the spring will last. You don't know how quickly it will dry up. You don't know whether or not this is superficial or not. You don't know whether or not it is polluted. You don't know if it's just here because there was a rain last night or if it's bubbling up from underneath the earth. You know nothing about this spring. And so you're going to aimlessly hope that you stagger into one. And then when it goes away or when you want to move on, you will aimlessly stagger into another and to another and into another. The picture here is something that is cheap. Something that you, it is not yours. You don't get to hold on to it. It's, it's, a, it's a fleeting pleasure. It's a, a fleeting satisfaction. It's a fleeting enjoyment. A fleeting contentment. Here's what he's saying. Son, what is better? What is better? Is it better to have springs scattered out all along the land and you just have to try to remember where this one is and this one is and this one is? Is it better to have springs all around that you don't know that you can trust? Is it better to have springs scattered abroad that may dry up any moment or is it better, son, to have one well that you can go to over and over and over Is it better to have a well in your house that you can trust and you can love and you can savor? Son, what do you want? Do you want a fling or do you want love? Do you want one night or do you want forever? Do you want a quick drink or do you want something to savor? You see, the father is teaching his son an invaluable principle that every one of us should learn. And it is that God's boundaries are always more satisfying than the world's indulgences. Let me say that again. God's boundaries are always more satisfying than the world's indulgences. We live in a society of promiscuity, don't we? We live in a society in which the sitcoms that you watch and the soap operas that come on and the movies that come through our theaters are filled with moving from one man to the next and one woman to the next. That this is the idea of freedom. That I am only truly free if I can go wherever I want to go, be with whomever I want to be with, do whatever I want to do, and be able to go home at night and not be tied down by any of it. You see, the world leaves out the second half of it. The part you never see in the sitcom is where she wonders whether or not he actually cares about her. The part you never see in the soap opera is the loneliness of going home every night by yourself, feeling as though you've just been used by somebody that has moved on to a new spring. What they don't tell our teenagers is the weight of shame that comes with that momentary indulgence. 
Brothers and sisters, God's design is not for our restriction. God's design is not intended to entrap us. God's design liberates us. It liberates us. It sets us free for greater joy. It sets us free for deeper satisfaction. It sets us free so that we might know his design most fully and enjoy it most fully. So that you can have one person in life given to you by God himself that, you can, that can be your companion and your friend, your business partner and your lover that can know everything about you in intimate detail physically and mentally and spiritually. It's somebody that you can be totally vulnerable with. And, and throughout the text he is saying, son, you need somebody that you can lower all of your inhibitions with. It's somebody that is truly there with you for life. A well that you can always drink from. Someone you can always count on. Something that's, that's deep and rich and not a momentary indulgence, but a forever satisfaction. Oh, if for five minutes, if for five minutes some of our marriages could just glimpse the joy that is available to you if you were living according to God's design for your marriage, the grass would never look greener for you on the other side. If for just five minutes you could know what it was like to fully experience your, mar your marriage in light of the glory of God and according to the plan of God, you would not for another second fathom being in somebody else's arms or in somebody else's bed. You would never even wrap your brain around it. Teenagers, unmarried adults, soon to be married adults, would you just dream for a second? Would you dream for a second? Would you dream of a relationship that is not cheap and momentary? Would you dream for a second for something that is not fleeting? Would you dream for a second of something with depth? Something that, that allows you to rejoice over and over and over. Something that, that, that is able to satisfy your thirst, not just physically, but intellectually and spiritually and emotionally. Would you have a, a grander vision for your marriage? Would you have a grander vision for your life than what you see on Modern Family and Desperate Housewives and all of the other garbage that is pervading our society? Would you want something deeper than that? Would you aim higher than that? Listen to what he says next. He says in verse 18, Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. He's saying enjoy one another. The, the, in his mind is the, is the wedding bed. And he's just saying enjoy one another. Be satisfied in one another. Take pleasure in one another. Go to one another and rejoice. And be filled with joy over and over and over. You know he says, he's very careful to say the, the wife of your youth. And in Jewish culture, you have to understand that most of the marriages were arranged. Now, I have two little girls. I would love for arranged marriages. You know what I'm saying? Instead, you know what I do? 
I go by our, our nursery, and I think, that guy's going to be a punk, that guy's going to be a punk, that guy's going to be a punk. And I'm going to take you down, son. Zach has two, two boys. Daniel, he's got like five of them. My enemies. My enemies. But in Jewish culture, though they were arranged marriages, it did not mean that they did not care about love or that they did not care about romance or that they did not care about passion. Did you know that according to Deuteronomy, that a man in his first year of marriage was not even eligible for civic duty or military duty? That he was to stay at home with his wife so that they could enjoy one another and get to know one another. And that little bitty spark of love that they have with one another would be able to be fanned into an inextinguishable flame. Let that be a picture for us. Let that be a picture for us. Let, can, can I, let me just give some counsel to some soon-to-be-married people, some one-day-to-be-married, some, some unmarried adults. When that day comes, when God gives you your well, when God gives you your cistern, when that, when that day comes about, in those early years, get to know one another. Take, take that little spark of love that you have for each other and fan it and, and, uh, and allow it to, to turn into an inferno that's inextinguishable, something that can last for 60 or 70 years. But you know, their understanding, and I, I need to address this because this is a growing reality in our culture, where parents hover over kids and kids stay attached to parents, right? Their understanding was that a husband and a wife leave the home and cling to one another. So in other words, when you're going to be married, make sure that you are going to be your own family. That's what that is. You don't have a family when you have kids. You have a family when you have a wife or a husband. So you have to be self-supporting. Mom and dad not still paying the power bill. Mom and dad not still helping out on the mortgage, right? I know emergencies happen, but I'm talking about in general principle. This is wisdom. Leaving the home, leaving your mom and dad, leaving your, your, your old room with the, with the, you know, Pokemon posters. That is not meant for your wife, brother. No, moving into a new house where you got to buy curtains, and you got to buy dishes, and you've got to go grocery shopping and pay your power bill. But mom and dad, let them have some space. We have moms and dads in here, I know, that have newly married kids, and it's so hard because you think back, and you remember what a struggle it was, and you remember the fights that were there, and you remember the uneasiness and the, the awkwardness of getting to know each other. You remember all of that, and you want your to help your kids, and you should still give them counsel, and you should certainly always be available for them to come to you at any point, but at some time, you're going to have to just give them space and let them be a family, and let them get to know one another and let them enjoy one another and let them be adventurous together and go places and do things that you're just going to have to give them spaces. You know what? Not every vacation has to be all of the family together. Go and have a vacation just husband and wife. Go together. When you do that, I'm telling you, it is an investment in the gener future generations of your family. The more in love your son and your daughter-in-law or daughter and son-in-law are with one another, the healthier your grandchildren will be. 
So parents, don't hover. Give them space. It's important to notice that he said of your youth and not in your youth. He does not say rejoice in the wife in your youth. Or in other words, he's not saying rejoice in your wife while you are young together. That's not what he's saying. That's in view, but that's not what he's saying. He says rejoice in the wife of your youth. Well, you can be 90 and married to the wife of your youth. You could have met early on and, been re- and, and continue to rejoice. Megan and I met when we were 16. That was like 15, 16 years ago. A oh, while. Wow. Uh, my mom and dad met in the ninth grade. Still the wife of their youth, right? What is he saying? Be content with one another. Be comfortable with one another. Be committed to one another. This is the picture that says, until death do us part. For sickness and sickness and in health, in rich, when we're rich and when we're poor, like in all of those scenarios, I am committed to you. I, there is nothing that is going to drive me away. And I am committed to you, not because I am obligated to be committed to you. I am committed to you because I desire to be committed to you. That in this moment, as we enter into covenant with one another I want you like I want no other woman on earth and I'm willing to lay my life down and say I am yours forever if you will be mine forever it's a steadfastness it's a commitment you know some of you know this better than you wish you did but the truth is is that your body's going to change isn't it and your health is going to change And your mind and mental faculties are going to change. Things about you are going to be different in 50 years than they are right now. But the idea here is that your love will not go down as your body goes down. And your love will not decrease as your mind and mental faculties decrease. And your, your marriage will not become more unhealthy as your body becomes more unhealthy. But instead, that it will grow and it will evolve and it will be built up so that it is enhanced and increased. Just as a testament to my mom and dad, over the whole of my life, I remember them being in love with one another. I remember this. I remember when they would fight, my mom or my dad, one, would often sit me down and look me in the eye and say, son, you just need to know we're going to have bad days, but we're not going anywhere. I will never leave your mother. I will never leave your dad. I, I can remember this vividly. Do you know, I honestly believe they love each other more now than they did when I was living at home. They've set a target for me. They've, 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 set a, they've cast a, a vision for me of what marriage can be like. And that's what's in picture here. You know, I have been married to about five different women in nine years. And if you're going to be married for 50 years, you're going to be married to about 15 or 20 different men, 15 or 20 different women, though they have the same name and the same fingerprint. You know, when I first met, we, we were... It was honeymoon, Megan, right? And then there was, we want to have kids, Megan. And then there was, we have one kid, Megan. And then there is, we have two kids, Megan. And I know that there will be many more to come. I am a profoundly different person than the person she thought she was marrying. Bless her heart. I don't know if that's good or bad. 
But what it means to be to rejoice in the wife of your youth is it means that in every single season there is a discovery process going on where you are learning one another and you are, are finding in that season what it is that makes them un, irresistibly attractive to you and beautiful and profound and unique. It's in every season seeing how the Lord has worked in their life and changed them as a person and how he has elevated them and how they've matured and how they're unique and how their interests have changed and their, their life view has changed. Now all of those things are completely different. And it's seeing that and falling in love over and over and over again so that you're never bored with one another. You're never unsure. Instead, you're going on in this exploration. You're going on in this process of discovery. I wonder sometimes if the reason that we're not in awe with one another anymore is if we've stopped trying to discover I wonder if we're not in awe in our marriages anymore because we have just become so complacent that we don't recognize how profoundly beautiful she has become, how profoundly respectable he has become, how the Lord has worked and how they have grown and how they have matured. Man, there is something powerful about that. And so I tell you, explore one another. And I mean that in every sense of the word. Explore one another. Know one another deeply. Know one another intimately. That's what the father is telling his son. This is the wife of your youth. Treasure her. Love her. Be committed to her. Be steadfast to her. Go deep with her. In verse 19, he calls her a lovely deer. A graceful doe. He says, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. He's talking here very clearly about the marriage bed. And he uses two phrases to describe the marriage bed. He says, in all times and with delight. He's telling his son the truth of the matter, and something that too often as Christians we just want to pretend like is not in the Bible. But what he is saying is that the marriage bed is intended to be a place that is frequently visited and fully enjoyed. That it is to be a place in which you escape from the world and cling to one another. It is the consummation of your marriage. It is the renewal over and over again of the covenant that you have made with one another before God. To be committed to one another. Till death do you part. To bring glory to God in your marriage. It's over and over and over. It is the, the repicturing of this, this covenant. This leaving mother and father and clinging to your husband and wife to God's glory. It's doing it over and picturing it over again. So much so that it uses a word that typically when it's used in the scripture is to refer to something negative. To refer to something bad. He says, be intoxicated. Intoxicated. He says, be intoxicated always in her love. 
The idea is, is that when he is with his wife, he goes to this euphoric place. He is so infatuated with her. He so desires her that he is almost swept away to a new place of Eden, to a, a paradise in which he is able to, to leave all of the brokenness and all of the struggles and all of the stress and all of the difficulty, even if it's just momentary. He's able to leave all of it behind just in the embrace of his wife. He's able to go to her in complete freedom and lower his inhibitions and her lower hers and to know one another as intimately as two human beings can know each other. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's intended to, to open up our eyes and to, to bring us near to each other. You know, I think there's a couple reasons that he's able to do that. And, I think these are, are powerful things, reason that they are, are so intoxicated with one another. Notice he, 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 says, he says at all times, and then he says again in the second part of that, always. In other words, there's a sense in which the husband is meditating over his wife. Think about how that would make you feel, ladies. To, to know that on your mind, your, your husband's mind, are, you are there all the time. That, that when, when he's cutting the grass, he's thinking, man, my lady is fine. He's going out to Buffalo Wild Wings with the boys, and he's thinking, man, I just kind of wish I was home with my wife right now. This guy smells like crackers. I would rather be with my wife. It's when he's at work, and he's, he's working, he's thinking, man, I am the luckiest man alive. And he just has to, like, shoot a text message over or something, saying, I'm thinking about you. I love you. I think you're beautiful. It's a husband meditating over the beauties of his wife. A husband meditating over the attractiveness of his wife. A husband mulling over and over in his mind, I am the luckiest man alive. God didn't just give me a well. He gave me the well, the cistern. I've got the best of them all. So that when they come together, in the marriage bed, there has been a longing there. There's been a noticeable absence. There's been a, a, a thinking, a, an appreciation of who he is and of who she is. So that when they come together, that longing is finally and ultimately satisfied because they are finally with one another again. They're intoxicated with one another. They're intoxicated with one another. They just kind of lose their way sometimes during the day because they kind of just stagger over into wife land or husband land because they just are so struck in love. The second reason I think they're able to remain intoxicated is notice the description of her. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. In other words, she presented herself to her husband in a lovely way. She presented herself to her husband in a graceful way. That, she, that she, didn't, she didn't dress up for work and dress down for her husband. No, she wanted to romance him. She wanted to be appealing to his eye. I'm not saying that you can't ever like take off your makeup and just chill at home. That's not what I'm saying. 
But I'm saying that there's an intentional pursuit in her life. There's an intentional making of herself lovely so that she draws her husband to herself. So that she is, she is uh, she, because she is provoking him to meditate on her over and over again. I think there's somewhere along the lines that so often we get the attitude. And it's a joke, but it's one of those things where there's more truth in it than reality. When we say, well, hand me that other helping of whatever. I'm married. It don't matter anymore. Right? And so we go to work and we dress like a total professional. And we come home and we look like an out-of-work sports fan. There's something about the way that we present ourselves to our husbands. There's something about the way that we present ourselves to our wives physically that is intended to indicate the passion and the desire and the love and the respect and the admiration that we have for them internally. That it's to say something. And for all of our single ladies, can I just give a word about immodesty? Immodesty. Immodesty is a billboard of insecurity. And when you walk around half-dressed and scantily clad, you are inviting the eyes of another, man's, uh, another woman's husband to take you in and to absorb you because you need the satisfaction of knowing that he does that. Or you're look, taking in the eyes of a, somebody else's future husband and saying, look at me, lust over me, be Smitten with me for a moment, right? But a young lady secure in the Lord, a, a young lady who finds her value in what God and God alone thinks of her, a young lady who is secure in Christ Jesus needs not the lingering eyes of a pervert. So she can dra- dress in modesty. This is Proverb 31, right? She clothes herself in modesty and she's worthy to be praised save yourself for your husband save don't don't allow other people to undress you with their eyes and if they're going to do it surely don't help them do it no demonstrate by the way that you dress your integrity and your security in Christ Jesus verse 19 He takes kind of that same, uh, verse 20, I'm sorry, he takes that same concept and he shows his son the opposite side of it. This is again, so we saw God's design, verse 19, God's design, smitten with one another, enjoying one another, frequent, enjoyable, together, all meditating, romancing, pleasure-seeking together with one another. And then we come to verse 20 and we see sin's effect again, right? Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Do you know what he's saying to his son? If you have a fountain of the rarest wine, why would you get yourself drunk on cheap beer from the gas station? If God has given you a woman, a well that is yours, and for you to know and to grow and to admire and to take pleasure in and to enjoy every year of your life, why in the world would you go chasing after soon-to-dry springs? He says, son, don't be intoxicated that way. 
Don't, don't, don't get yourself drunk on the illusion of freedom. Don't get yourself drunk on the allure of the prostitute. Don't get yourself drunk on the allure of the flirtatious man. Don't get yourself drunk on those things. Don't stagger into death that way. You see, that's what happens. That's how adultery begins. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable reality that in all of the cases of adultery that I'm aware of, very, very, very rarely is the man that she committed adultery with or the woman that he committed adultery with more attractive than his husband, than her husband or his wife. Adultery doesn't work that way. It works that way maybe in soap operas. It works maybe that way in movies. But in real life, adultery doesn't happen like that. No, adultery happens all of a sudden, she starts showing him respect that he feels like he doesn't get at home. All of a sudden, there's somebody at work that begins to stroke his ego and make him feel good about himself. And all of a sudden, he forgets about reality and he becomes drunk on that, fa- drunk on that respect and drunk on that admiration until eventually the allure is just overcome for him. For her, she sees this guy and and he pays attention to her in a way that her husband is not in a long time. And so she becomes drunk on that, intoxicated on that. And so she sees him as Prince Charming and she holds up Prince Charming and she measures him beside the slob that she lives with, with shirts on the floor. But you know what? She doesn't know how many shirts are on his floor at home because she's never lived with him. She doesn't know how he parents. She doesn't know about all his skeletons. She doesn't know about all of his baggage. And she doesn't care because she is drunk and intoxicated. So many people are giving up so much for so little. So many people are giving up so much for so little. There are men who right now, probably under the sound of my voice, are in the midst of an affair, and you are bringing into question the security of your children, the security of your wife, the steadfastness of your covenant with before God, all for a quick fling, all for a few momentary moments of excitement and pleasure. There are ladies whose children adore you, And you're giving up so much for so little, for for a few platitudes and empty flattery. You're selling yourself out. There are people here that are trading in the love and satisfaction and pleasure of their wife for a computer screen. So much for so little. There are teenagers and, and unmarried people in here. That for a few moments of of hormonal satisfaction, you are selling yourself out. You're prostituting yourself out. Can't you see it's a trap? Can't you see that the illusion of freedom is nothing more than that? Can't you see that the satisfaction comes according to God's design? There is an epidemic of adultery in the church today. It perhaps is the black eye of the 21st century church. 
And it is not a teenage problem. Cohabitation has become somehow accepted. But as pastorally as I know how to tell you, I want you to hear me say that if you are living in sexual immorality, that is an issue of church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5 mandates it so. And because we love you and we want you to be saved, we will come to you. And we will confront you. Because your marriage, whether it's present or it's future, is worth it, brothers and sisters. Is worth it. You're carrying around a baggage of shame that you don't have to carry. You're carrying around a baggage of of embarrassment that you don't have to carry. A baggage of guilt that you don't have to carry. And you are missing out on God's best for you. So the father takes that moment. And in the rapture of that, he he moves him over to the broader picture of theology. And so he says in verse 21, For a man's ways before the eyes of the Lord... And he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Do you see that your immorality is not an issue of whether or not you are pregnant or not? It is not an issue of whether or not you have an STD or not. It is an issue of life and death. Not physical life, spiritual life. The scriptures are clear that the sexually immoral have no place in the kingdom of God. And if you live in perpetual sin, unrepentant sin, and are not broken, you do not know Christ. Understand that no sin is hidden simply because your belly isn't growing. No. Hebrews chapter 4 says that all of us are naked and exposed before the Lord. That he sees what we do. He knows what we do. And our sin will have consequences. Just as full as the satisfaction is when we live according to his design. Or as devastating as the consequences are when we live contrary to his design. See, anytime you use something for a purpose that it's not designed for, it's destructive. If you took your iPhone and used it to drive a nail, it would destroy your iPhone. As wonderful as your iPhone is. And sex is like that. Ray Ortland says it like this. Sex is like a fire. If it's in the fireplace, if it's, in the, if it's a fire in the fireplace, it keeps the whole house warm. But if it gets out of the fireplace, if it gets out of God's boundaries, it burns the house down. And this is the truth, brothers and sisters. Why are people immoral? Why do people do immoral things? That's what he tells us in verse 22. Because they are snares. They are traps. And for a moment, the trap looks enticing. For a moment, the trap looks alluring. For the moment, the trap draws you in. And as you're the, you're the mouse eating the cheese, in a second, you feel good. Until the trap is triggered and breaks your neck. 
People sin and do immoral things because it is attractive to them in the moment. But do not break your neck for one bite of cheese. Do not go into the trap thinking that you will not be ensnared. You are not the exception. No matter what form your adultery takes, it's going to bring havoc to your life. No matter what form it takes, whether it's a computer screen, whether it's some guy that you just met and leave, whether it really is the person that you end up marrying one day, it is going to bring with it baggage, it is going to bring with it destruction, it is going to bring with it consequences because you are living against God's design and you are compromising the picture of the gospel of a God that looks at you and says no matter the year, no matter the time, no matter how old you get, no matter how much your mind fades away, I am committed committed to you because I desire you and we are in covenant with one another. And so when you flagrantly destroy a covenant, you are flagrantly destroying the gospel picture. But the good news this morning, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus came to set us free from the snares of sin. Maybe this morning you are the person in the midst of adultery. Maybe this morning you're carrying around that baggage of guilt. You've got the shame. Maybe you're a teenager that went farther than you ever thought you would. Maybe you're a husband that has done the unthinkable on his wife or a wife that has done the same to her shame. And maybe this morning you just feel like you're in the midst of despair. I would tell you that Jesus came for this moment. Jesus came to set you free from the snare that has doomed you to death. Jesus is beckoning you to come to him because he will not just forgive you, he will restore you. I have a friend who was once in my student ministry and he got his girlfriend pregnant in high school. Obviously you can imagine it was the the biggest news in town and everybody was talking about it. Well, the Lord did a great work in his life, and he, he was saved, and she was saved, and they committed themselves, and they married. He finished high school, uh, he uh, expedited his high school process and quit, got a job where he went and worked 5 a.m. to 1 p.m., and then went to school from 1 p.m. to 8 p.m. every day. But they cared for this little girl, they married one another, and I remember one day he was helping me visit hospitals. And I was just asking him about how things are going and how he was doing and and what the Lord was doing. And I will never forget the words that he said to me. He said, Cody, it's the most amazing thing. I lived my life only thinking lustful things. I lived from the pornography that I watched, from the things that I had done, every woman that I saw, every thing that I heard, I perverted it in my mind and corrupted it because my mind was so filled with impurity. I said, but Cody, not that it's been easy, but now, having been a Christian for several, several months, do you know what God has done? He has restored to me my innocence, slowly but surely. He has restored to me pure thinking so that I don't see every woman and immediately undress her. He has restored my my mind. and He has restored my vision. You see, the Lord, though you are no longer a virgin, can restore to you a fragment of your virginity again. 
He can restore and replenish your mind. He can replenish and remove from you your shame. He can deliver you from all of that. And he died to do so. This morning, would you come? Would you come? This morning, I wonder how many married couples are living in contrary to God's design in your marriage. I wonder how many of you have failed to discover new things in one another. Instead of growing more in love, you have grown more frustrated. This morning, would you take one another by the hand and come? Maybe you know that in your marriage, you're the issue. And this morning, you would take your wife or take your husband and bring them to the altar and repent before God and repent before them. Would you come? This morning, I dream of you knowing God's full design. For your marriage. Let's pray.